Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've done, no, the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. We can talk about some of the stuff we've done if you want. I got some stories. Yeah, I went out of town. Went down oh, to Temecula right. Wine Country for the weekend to celebrate my three-year anniversary with, three year my, anniversary with my lovely wife, Natalie. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, oh, that was a good time. That was something that I did. What else did I do since the last time we recorded? I went to the L.A. County Fair. Okay. Which I like to do. Apparently, yeah, if you want to if you want to beat the the rush on the LA County Fair, mm-hmm. you know, which can get pretty crowded. Go, apparently here's what I learned. Go the first weekend when it just happens to be 110 fucking degrees. Okay. And there's not that many people there it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> no no lines. Yeah. <laughs> um poor, you know, poor ass like donkeys and pigs and shit. Yeah. Um I mean they're in shaded areas, uh but it's still uh I felt bad for the for the animals. It's nice and cool now, though. It's great. It's great. Yeah, it, it, it broke a couple of days ago. And yeah. It's been great, yeah. I hope um, it... But I also... This is who I am now. This feeling is like, oh, it's so nice and cool, it's not going to last. Like, No, it's still summer. Yeah. I know you don't think it is. But it is still summer. Certainly temperature-wise, it is. So... Well, yeah, I mean, I, that's I, we've talked about it before. Like, uh, it, you know, the real summer in los angeles is august september october <laughs> that's when it's really hot in los angeles and here's what's fascinating is that because because your wedding was in september but at the same time it was at the top of a building no matter and it was mostly in the evening uh so like but there are so many people who book weddings in september and october in Los Angeles, they've lived here for a while, yeah. but somehow they, and it's an outdoor wedding during the day and somehow they still, somehow they, they expect it to be autumnal yeah. some, and it's like, no, 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 that's, I, I it's going to be blazing I, hot. I forget every year. I guess you know I do why too. I remember now why is, that? is because I got married on what ended up being like the hottest day of 2014. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you're right. I mean, it ended up because we were up high and it, and mostly like the wedding didn't even start till 6 p.m. Yeah. It cooled down and I don't think the the heat was a problem for my wedding. Yeah, no, not at all. But yeah, I, I can imagine some other people uh, having big problems. But let's talk about some movies, right? Okay, or did you have it. something you did that you wanted to... Well, as you know, I'm not going to tell these stories, but okay. I, started, uh, I started driving for Lyft just to get some extra income. Uh, and I, I guess I drive the graveyard shift. Uh-huh. Which, not unlike when I go to Denny's yeah. late at night, and every once in a while, there's some craziness that happens. Um, the five days that I've driven for Lyft have yielded so many stories. Yeah. You're, uh, like, uh, you're like Carl Munt. Boy, I could tell you some stories. I could tell you some stories, yes. <laughs> I'm like him in a bunch of ways, by the way. And I'm like Barton cutting you off. That's exactly the uh, point. <laughs> sure you could, but we got to talk about <laughs> movies. Uh, yeah, but best of luck with driving for Lyft. Indeed. Um, the roads are lucky to have you. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true. I think I'm a, if anything, I've gotten to be a worse driver in the last several days. I I feel like I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've been a passenger in a car you've driven. Really? Probably not since my bachelor party. I think that was probably the last time you drove me home. You didn't even drive me. I took the, I took public transit there and you drove me home. Um, I was actually just thinking about you and, and my bachelor party. Um, uh, I can't remember what made me think of this. But you were like, at the end, like we went, we started at a bar, we went to the 
Dodgers game, we went to a steakhouse, and then we did a couple more bar hopping. We ended yes. up starting, ended up back at uh, the the shortstop the bar we started at. But I remember we were at Little Joy, the bar down the street from the shortstop, and you because you're not like a late night bar type of person. I remember right. you saying to me like. I don't get this. You're like, yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying the company and I'm enjoying the conversation. Why do we have to do, be doing it at a place where we all have to shout? <laughs> it's, it and I don't have an yeah. answer, but I, I, I remember telling my therapist about that and she was like, yeah, he just doesn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. It's, it's one of these things where I, it's not unlike when people talk about, you know, dates happening, um, at a restaurant where it's like, the one thing we're doing is talking. Why are we shoving food into our mouths at that moment? Well, because it's, like, it's something to do. Like a first, some, a first date, especially is yes. like, yeah, you it gives have, you, it gives you business. It gives you business. It gives you yeah. something to talk about. Sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, there's just something about, uh, and again, I'm not a drinker, but at the same time, everybody at a bar is talking to somebody and it's like, okay, well look, I'm not saying cut the music completely, but <laughs> Everyone, I, every time I go out to a bar with, with friends, I'm always super hoarse the next day. Uh-huh. I was like, this is, we didn't have it. We didn't say anything worth this. It sounds like you want is more along lines of like the, the, the British pub experience where, where it's probably is more true, of yeah. like a gathering place and conversation place. I think. Yeah. Anyway, it's why I like Denny's. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's fine. Also, uh, but at, at the same time, maybe not everybody's interested in drinking five cups of coffee at one in the morning. Like I did last night i yeah I, I mean i used to do that um and then i turned 21 and i realized i could hang out at bars instead mm. um okay right. so what'd you see david i watched a movie from a few years ago a beautiful movie called last summer directed by mark Thiedemann, or okay. Thiedemann. um and it's uh the 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 name uh is a bit misleading because it's not about last summer in terms of previous summer it's about a last summer basically oh, it's okay. two two boys who are have been childhood friends and then eventually romantic partners since they were boys like they're mm. spent their entire high school years but one of them is very um, what's what I'm looking for? It's very much a, a an, an achiever and has a scholarship okay. and is going off to college. You know, the one doesn't and is going to be staying put. And so the movie takes place over the course of their their last summer. Okay. Um. But uh, it's that what I just described. Even though that's not much of a plot, that's more of a plot than the movie really has. It's right. more just it's it's about seventy five minutes. It's like my favorite length of a movie. It's great. Um. And it's just a bunch of sort of uh, s- scenes, tableau, bits, glimpses strung together about them, uh, about them hanging out, and also about their relationship with their parents, who sort of represent the town in in general. Uh, which is not—I know what you're thinking. Like small southern town, two gay kids. It's going to sure. be about their struggles. It's not really about that at all. Like it seems to be, this is they, they're out and they're very who they are and this is who they've always been. And it's not, it's refreshingly not an issue. I hope that as time goes on, it, that's actually what it's like for southern kids. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or any small town kids, you know, the, they're not any more tolerant of <laughs> any more yeah. or less tolerant of gays in, you know, Montana or whatever, um, than they are in wherever this movie takes place. That's not the point. The point is, it's not about what you think it's going to be about, but there are, uh, it, the, 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 the gay element of it is not what defines the movie. It's really more about the difference between these two boys and their futures and the way that 
the movie sort of illustrates this idea that Southern people in general sort of maybe have a chip on their shoulder because people think like you've talked about when people do the dumb person, dumb American accent is yeah. sort of defaults to a Southern accent. Yeah. And so that includes me by the way. <laughs> yeah. And so Southerners are maybe like already a little bit on the defensive because they think everyone thinks they're smarter than they are. Sure. And so the idea of someone who has a scholarship going off to a big, like fancy university, he hasn't done anything wrong. But maybe treat, maybe, maybe people treat him with a little bit of suspicion. Maybe even like his own family, like have a little bit of like a grudge against him because he is going off to pursue something else. Right. Someone, something somewhere else, but he's the, the quote unquote smart kid. They're both smart, but the, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote smart kid is not really, he's the other kid. Who's the main character, the one who's going to be, staying put. Okay. Um, and it, it gets all this across with these beautiful, quiet, um, shots that are sort of, um, alternate between like wide establishing shots of rooms or outdoors. And then a lot of, a lot of very specific close-ups of leaves or curtains or things that are just sort mm. of just generally Southern. And it gets the way that the way that, uh, now I'm from the Midwest, not from the South, but, uh, you know, I was back home a few weeks ago for my, my brother's uh, wedding and like, even though we had an Airbnb in the city of St. Louis at night, it's still cicadas and all that like nighttime noise. You yeah. don't really like, there's plenty of noise at night in Los Angeles, but yeah. it's mostly cars and sirens. Yeah. Not so much car horns. That's a New York city thing. Yes. New York city. That's like I, I, people who live there must just be like, blind to it or whatever, like ear blind, deaf to it is the word I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, I'm ear blind. Yeah. You need to speak up. Um, people, it's a constant din of horn of car horns in New York city. Hmm. It's crazy. I've you've actually never, I've, I've never been to New York. Oh, oh, you've been to Boston. I guess I, yes, uh, I've never been to Boston. Um, whereas Los Angeles, which is much more of traditionally thought of as a driving city. Yeah. People don't use their horns nearly as much. Um, I did on the way here weirdly. I rarely did, but on the way here, someone I was trying to get onto the, uh, the, the four or five, um, uh, from, from sunset or onto Sepulveda way, which leads to the four or five from sunset. And, um, you know, people are waiting in line in the far right lane and some idiot thought he could like scoot up in the second to right lane and then scoot ah. over at the last minute. Like, I almost ran into him. the person in front of me. I almost ran into him. Uh, and at least three different people, including me honked their horns at him, which is not something I almost ever do. But that, that particular thing of someone like trying to skirt around. Cause I also, when I go to work, I take Laurel South mm-hmm. when I'm going up the hill. I don't know if you can picture that road. Yeah, yeah. There's two lanes left goes straight to go over the hill and down into Hollywood or mm-hmm. West Hollywood. And right goes the right lane goes right onto Mulholland. I'm yeah. taking Mulholland and most people are going straight, which means that right lane moves a lot faster. And there's always every morning, there's at least two people who think they're cute and like stay in the right lane until almost the last minute uh, and yes. get over to the, to the left. I fucking hate them. I so did. Much. I did just read an article uh, by just, I mean like a month or two ago, um, that says that that's actually the way to do it. That that is how one should, should merge in a situation like that. Why? I don't remember. I don't, I didn't agree. And I think I I think I still don't. I guess life isn't fair. Yeah. And I should probably get over it. Yeah. But it's not fair. All right. So the movie's called last summer. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's great. You know, I'll tell you what strikes me about just your description of is this idea of like 
images of leaves and that kind of thing. It very much, I can picture it even as you describe it, having not seen the film, but like whenever you're like, when I just went to Missouri, I recognized it's probably going to be the last time I'm, I'm there. So I tried to take it in a bit more. And mm-hmm. so like trying to remember very specific details cause you don't know how long you're going to need to hold on to them before you yeah. are exposed to them again. I was probably in the same headspace. This, my, my mom no longer lives in St. Louis. Yeah. This was the last of my siblings to get married. My, my younger brother youngest brother, Kevin. Um, but then my, I guess my other younger brother, his, his wife is pregnant and due in January. So I, mm-hmm. I will have a reason to go back to St. Louis, sure. I guess, uh, sometime soon, but I don't know when it's going to be. Um, you know, cause holidays, I don't go, I don't go to St. Louis for holidays anymore. I go to Boise or I stay yeah. here. Um, yeah, stay, stay here. Obviously that's the best. That's the best one. Uh, well, we've done, I mean, I stay, staying here for Christmas is obviously like Los Angeles, Christmas, uh, Los Angeles at Christmas time is the greatest place. It's a dream. I, I love it. Um, I have done a couple of Thanksgivings in Boise and I like that. Okay. Um, yeah. Anyway. Moving on. I watched another movie um, that came out earlier this year that I had been really excited to see because I saw the trailer for it, but when I was seeing something else, and the premise of the movie sounded terrific to me. And it was also from the guy um, who made uh, Terry, T-E-R-R-I. Remember that movie a few years ago with uh, uh, John, John C. C. Riley? Riley? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. His name's Azazel Jacobs. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. Mm-hmm. The movie's called The Lovers. I don't know okay. if you remember. Uh, it stars Tracy Letts and Deborah Winger. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. And they're long term like both of them yeah uh they're a you know middle-aged long-time married couple their one child is off at college um and they are both having affairs and both planning to leave each other and then uh on the eve of their son coming back to visit which they've kind of said they've, they've both told their partners like we need to spend this weekend with our son and then we'll break this off, you know, yeah. and we'll, we'll get a divorce and something about it. Like their son visiting and like this sort of artificial end being near, they sort of rekindle their romance. And so it ends up becoming like they're cheating again hmm. because for years at this point, their main romantic relationship has been with their, yeah. you know, um, mistress or manstress. I don't know. There's no, that's something I was talking about with, with, with Natalie. Yeah. Like there's no word for that. Mister. Yeah. They're mister. They're mister. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're, by the way, Melora Walters and Aiden Gillen are the, uh, Oh wow. All right. Great cast. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I was, I, I found that to be a terrifically interesting idea. Yeah. Um, when I saw the trailer, um, unfortunately the movie and as Hazel Jacobs, um, are a little too comfortable with how cute the idea is. Ah. And so what should be a, what, what, what I was hoping would be a, a more um, touching, but clear eyed and sober look at romance mm. um, ends up being a little too pleased with its own premise. Sure. Uh, and there's just way, there's a little too much cutesiness uh, in, in the movie. Uh, unfortunately, especially with the way that it ends, which I won't go into, but, um, a, yeah. uh, a friend on Facebook, uh, posted, uh, a news article that was real in which, uh, a guy, it's astonishing. It doesn't feel like it could be real, but it is. Um, a guy called an escort service uh-huh. and the hooker that arrived, 
sorry, the escort that arrived, but yeah. come on, um, was his wife. That's funny. But and also, of course, in the comments section, I said like, yes, but did they like pina coladas and getting caught in the <laughs> right, rain? Obviously. Yeah. Um, um, I know that this movie is not the same yeah. thing, but it reminded me of that. To be, I'm not going to be uh, SJW guy by the use of hooker. I'm going to be pedantic. Okay. If it's an escort where you call and she comes to you, she's not really hooking. Like That's I feel true. like hooking is standing on the corner. That's true. And, That's true. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think hooker is good old fashioned right. prostitute. How's that? Yeah. Prostitute's a great. One. Okay, good. Um, you're correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then finally I watched the movie. I think you're going to be surprised that I'd never seen this movie before. Okay. Cause I know you've seen it. You have the, 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 the DVD, but, um, I'm not generally, I was when I was younger, but I think these days I am not a fan of watching movies that are supposed to be bad. Do you know what I mean? Oh, sure, sure. But I had never seen the king of these movies, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, really? I'd never watched it because I, I'd never really wanted to. Um, okay. But it is, uh, there's a reason people like to watch this movie so much. It is wonderfully bad. and the, But it's like, I didn't feel mean, I think, is the thing. I think that's what I was always afraid of, is that I, like, you and I used to have, like, you know, a bad movie. You and I and our roommate Cole, who wrote the theme song for mm. uh, both Battleship Retention and the BP Movie Journal. Uh, thank you, Cole. Um, used to watch bad movies. I feel like we were at the age for that. Now I feel like I'm a little. Yeah. It feels mean. I didn't feel mean watching this. I enjoyed it in a way, um, especially the narration and the, just the because it's not like. It is bad writing, but it's not bad in like an amateurish way. Yeah. Or maybe it is. I'm not sure what like it's not like lazy writing. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's what Boy, it's, that, yeah, it's it, not it, lazy writing. It's trying too hard. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And like what is it like when Bella Lugosi is like sniffing flowers or he actually doesn't sniff the flower. He picks it and like brings it almost it. to yeah. his nose and then he drops it. But the narration is like the sky they once looked up at is now just a covering, just a covering for, for her, her dead, dead body. body. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I loved it. I really enjoyed watching, watching this movie. I, yeah. You know, I will admit there are some places I'm glad I watched it at home. Cause I probably maybe looked at my phone a few times because sure. it, it does drag at places. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that I think a lot of us forget about like these bad movies is that f- there's a good, uh, a cumulative probably 20 to 25 minutes that is it's not entertaining bad yeah. it's just dull as can be yeah and uh this one maybe doesn't have that many but uh yeah i know what you mean when you say that it's it's not you didn't feel mean yeah no and maybe it's because you've seen ed wood yeah it mostly maybe want to watch ed wood again because it's been no, a while no question about it um but uh that's a movie that really celebrates ed wood and mm-hmm. so I saw Ed Wood before I saw Plan 9 from Outer Space. And so when I watched it, I felt as though I was celebrating this guy who he didn't have a lot of talent, but God bless him, he was trying. Yeah. And he was enjoying himself. And uh, there's something about, I don't know, but maybe just maybe because uh, because of Ed Wood, that kind of gives us gives me permission to watch it unironically, actually. Yeah. There was some interesting stuff that I... Uh, you know, I was reading up about the movie afterwards that like um, in some in in one interesting way, it was a few years ahead of its time in that it's a the movie's about a government cover up. It's a mm. 1950s movie where like it wasn't until the 1960s that 
that, you know, sure. American like pop culture really turned, started to get cynical about about the government. Sure. So the idea of the government being kind of the bad guys of the movie, um, is a little bit ahead of its time, of its time in a way. Um, anyway, I that, that Ed Wood, he was very prescient, but, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it's going to, you know, there are others. I've never watched the room. I've never wanted to, um, I don't know if I ever, maybe I will. The room I is, I, I hate to say it. It is worth watching because for much of the same reason, like it is someone who is, there's no cynicism there. Like this is a guy who just put himself into this film in every way possible. And it is atrocious. And there, and also like plan nine is a drama is a sci-fi. Like the room is a drama and, and, um, and a melodrama, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it feels so much like it's written by this petulant 16 year old who's just trying so hard to get people to understand him. And then he's writing it like maybe against his ex-girlfriend or something like that. There, it is definitely worth seeing. I think, I think the last one, the last thing that's like in this category that I enjoy and will rewatch and will stand by is the, the, the first edition of trapped in the closet, the R Kelly, like, uh, sure video album thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen all three volumes of it. Okay. And I think the problem is that after the first one, when R Kelly realized that his hipster assholes like me were laughing at it, yeah. he tried to make it funny in the second and third ones. And, um, no, thank you. Uh, it doesn't, it's, it's better when it's taking itself seriously. Uh, have you seen trapped in the closet? Uh, not in a long time. I couldn't tell you much. I could tell you a lot more about that South park episode called trapped in the closet oh, than think, the actual video. I don't remember if I even saw that. Um, it's interesting. All right, well, it's, that's, it's basically uh, their Scientology episode. Um, okay. Well, what's next for you? Uh, well, first for me, I believe is, uh, Luke Besson's Valerian and the city of a thousand planets, which that's Luke Besson, right? Yeah, I was yes, like, wait, okay. didn't you know? We talked about this off mic last week. We talked about it off mic, yes. Yeah. Um, I was very happy I saw it, and I was very happy I saw it in the theater. It is a visual marvel, as one would assume. Yes, there's a lot of CG, but it's a good, it's a good argument that CG is not itself a bad thing like a lot of a lot of movie people have said like oh i i like practical effects like well we like practical effects because it kind of forces the the people who make the movie to be a bit more creative to overcome the limitations of a practical effect but if you have somebody with a tremendous amount of limit of imagination like uh luke passant then uh you know, CG visual effects can be just as much, just as exciting as any practical effect. And there's just this beautiful fluidity to the world that he's creating and the way he presents it, uh, in many ways, like it's, it's, we're seeing a completely digital image on screen, not unlike watching the, the star Wars prequels, but those were very turgid and static. And this is not, uh, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful visual experience. Um, I will say that, uh, that script is bad. That is a bad script in terms of plotting or dialogue or dialogue. Okay. Plotting, I think actually works fine, but, and it's primarily the two leads. It's not, it's not their fault as actors, but he just does not know how to write them. Hmm. Um, 
And I think he also, there, there might be a bit of miscasting with Dane DeHaan, who I think is a very good actor, but I don't think anybody would describe him as a Han Solo type. And he kind of is playing like this dashing guy. And it's like, yeah, but you're pale with these big bags under your eyes. You look like you are about to die of tuberculosis. <laughs> right, um, yeah. So these little wisecracks you're making aren't really landing. Um, and that, I don't I don't like, I'm not trying to make fun of Dane DeHaan. I, think he, I do think he's a great actor, and he does what he can with the role. It's just not the right part for him. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think that the, the, the world created and the, the music, and just it, it all comes together to be an experience that like, yeah, a movie is more than its script. A lot of people, uh, probably including me many years ago thought like, well, if that script is bad, there's only so much I'm going to get into it. I don't think that's the case anymore. Like if you are able to, to realize, uh, a vision, uh, visually, then I think, um, I think a movie can be immensely watchable. And I think Valerian is an immensely watchable movie. And I'm, I am happy that I saw it in the theater. Uh, like just, I, I saw it at that $2 theater. So I was like, it's just about Perfect. to leave. So, um, the one on Bellingham. Yeah. Yeah. I've been there a while. I like that theater. Okay. Um, moving on. Okay. Now one thing that Tyler, I think I've said to you, I know I said to the listeners, well, if I said to the listeners, I've definitely said it to you. You're usually here when I'm talking to them. Indeed. Um, that I tend not to like documentaries that are about bands that I like. Okay. Because I kind of feel like rare is there, rare is the documentary about a band that is more enjoyable than just listening to that band for an hour and a half. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, I already know big star are good. I didn't need this, yeah. you know? Um, but, I watched a, a movie that takes another another approach. Have you heard of a documentary called Lambert and Stamp? No. So it's a documentary about the guys who were the managers of The Who. Oh, okay. It's fascinating. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, because they are... Uh, so Stamp, the stamp of the title is Terrence Stamp's brother, was the manager of The Who. Oh, I was going to make a joke about it being Terrence Stamp. <laughs> uh, Terrence Stamp is one of the talking heads being interviewed in the... That's cool. Uh, in the movie. And then the Lambert guy was these, this, um, like he came from an incredibly wealthy, like aristocratic background. His father was like a famed, like, uh, conductor maybe, I think like, mm-hmm. like orchestra, you know, conducted orchestras. And that's the right word. Sure. Right? Conductor. Okay. Like, um, he spoke multiple languages. He was like the most sort of like eaten, educated type of like Oxbridge, like guy or whatever. Um, but he loved movies and stamp loved movies. They met like they were working on movies. They were working at the, um, now I can't remember the name of the, 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 the film studio. And they kind of saw this like rock and roll thing happening and like a certain type of rock and roll. And they were like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to manage one of these bands that we find like in a bar. We're going to make them successful. Mm-hmm. We're going to film everything and turn it into a documentary. And then like that documentary never happened, but they just like kept being the managers of the who for like the first like 20 years or something of their, of, of their careers. That's like that story about Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory that, uh, that I forget what, uh, what candy company, they were going to make a Wonka bar uh-huh. inspired by the Roald Dahl book. And then they're like, Oh, you know what we'll do is we'll bankroll 
this uh, movie, but we can't call it Charlie and Chocolate Factory because we want to tie it in with this cho- with this right. bar. So we will call it Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, the bars still exist, but no, who cares? Nobody <laughs> knows about it. Um, yeah, they're not so particularly like, good candy bars, I don't think. I've had them, and they, yeah, they're. It's it is a, as Sean Cullen would say, it's a very poor quality chocolate. <laughs> um, but uh, and then, but yeah, it's just this interesting thing. It's like we're going to do this big old thing as a way of doing this other thing. Oh shoot, uh, we had no idea that the big thing we we were creating would be like this pivotal yeah. legacy yeah. uh achievement uh in in the medium yeah well i mean yeah and that's yeah the who were already a band and um uh already were sort of crazy on stage that's kind of i think what they they were like that's dynamic that's a good thing like that's the kind of thing we want for our movie yeah is um people who look like juvenile delinquents and act like them sure um, to fit into the, in the movie there's a funny story where um I think it's Chris Stamp, Taron Stamp's brother. I think it's Chris, but I could be wrong. Um, he's the one who's still alive. Lambert has passed away, um, possibly because in all of the footage that we see in the entirety of the movie of Lambert, he is never not smoking a cigarette. Sure. Um, uh, but uh, Stamp tells a story about coming home and telling like his mom and sisters, like, we're going to manage a, a pop group is what he said. Um, you know, and they're like, okay, this might work out for you. And then he showed him a picture of the who, and they were like, oh, this is never going to work. They're all so ugly, <laughs> <laughs> which is very funny. Um, it's a fact, and it, it ends up getting into the who and how the who like became, you know, this essentially raucous bar band who mostly did covers to being like one of the great rock bands of yeah. all time and going to doing a musical, you know, yeah. a rock opera, you know, and, um, and how, you know, how, again, and, and sort of ties in the, the, the influence of these two, particularly Lambert, who was, uh, you know, on the one hand, didn't like to like brag about or, or show his like rich culture background, but also like was influential. Like there's a reason they did a rock opera because Lambert was like, had a, an encyclopedic knowledge of opera and classical music and Pete Townsend was living with him, uh, at the time. And, uh, that's, and so it sort of implies that the who wouldn't have been the who without, without hmm. these two. Um, it's a really fascinating. Yeah. That's really, that's really fascinating. Really Lambert and stamp is what it's called. Okay. Uh, next up I watched the movie. You can, uh, read my review of the Blu-ray on the website. It's called, uh, the 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 English language title for the Blu-ray release is Revenge of the Blood Beast. Okay. Um, it is also known as She Beast or The She Beast, and then it has a number of different um, Spanish and Italian titles uh, or whatever. But basically, it has a it's a, another movie that's about seventy five minutes long. Sure. <laughs> um, it's um, it's an Italian made, I think, horror movie, um, but it takes place in Transylvania, but it's not about a Dracula, but then Helsing is a character. <laughs> um, basically like, so there's a prologue where the townspeople, um, there's this witch who lives in the woods and is killing people and killing children. So the townspeople like essentially lynch her, I guess, but they, they drown her. It's a very, they like impale her and then drown her. It's like yeah. a very, it's a very brutal, uh, death. Um, and her spirit haunts, you know, 200 years later, this is sort of newly married British couple is, 
vacationing, driving through the Transylvanian countryside, mm-hmm. and they stop at a hotel and they get into a fight with this um, just brute of the hotel owner, motel owner, or whatever. They drive away in a huff. They they crash into the lake where the witch was drowned, and then oh, and the, the wife here is played by Barbara Steele from Black Sunday, and then the witch, because they're in the lake or whatever, switches spirits places or whatever with Barbara Steele's character and then suddenly has a physical form again okay. and is going around killing people. Sure. Um, that doesn't sound like a blood beast to me. Uh, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's the, the she beast, I guess okay. is the, the other title. That's if you go to IMDb, uh, dot com, internet movie database.com, they have it listed first and foremost as she beast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are you jimmy pardo you just decided to okay okay um i guess that's where i got that from um but here's where it gets weird okay and some of the stuff that i just said gets cast into a new light and definitely the second half of the movie is an entirely different movie at one point i remember they're in eastern europe okay this is the 1960s she's killing a guy brutally slicing him to ribbons uh with a sickle when she's done, she tosses the sickle across the room. It skitters across the floor and comes to rest atop a hammer. And it's a very conspicuous shot of a hammer and sickle. And from that point on, the movie becomes an anti-communist satire and kind of was beforehand. Like you kind of realize like that the reason this got so the reason things got so fucked up in the first place, you know, I just want Mr. Wallace to know how sorry we are that things got so fucked up. Anyway, um, the reason things got so fucked up is because the townspeople acted as a mob and didn't listen Uh to the count or the aristocracy of the nobility or whatever and didn't, who was a Van Helsing or Von Helsing as they say in the movie, Uh which is annoying um, because I know it is Van Helsing, but whatever. Um, uh, you know, if they had done things the way that the nobility and the upper classes told them to, as opposed to just forming together into a dumb mob, um, this wouldn't have, they wouldn't have fucked things up. The hotel owner that I talked about being a brute is sort of representative of the guy who's like, he's loyal to the government and sort of thinks that gives him a pass to be a total shit to everyone else all the Mm. time. Um, and then when, once the military, like police slash military get involved, um, in searching for this guy's, uh, wife, whatever she went, um, they're like bumbling. They're either Keystone cops type, like the movie turns comic at one point, um, because they're either bumbling Keystone cops types or they're like Brazil, Terry Gilliam type, like, uh, overly like, uh, committed to protocol like there's yeah. uh, they you know when they the guy who's been sliced sliced to pieces like one of the one of them says like um is he talking and they were like no he's already dead and he said then he's obstructing justice or whatever <laughs> like that's they're constantly arresting everyone for any sort of disloyalty to the state um it's such a weird it turns into a caper it's such a weird movie. It's not often that in a 75 minute film, you find a pivot (laughs) to a completely different genre. Um, it's bizarre. I'll say this for the, sounds kind of great. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'll say this for the Blu-ray, the transfer. It looks beautiful. Mm. It looks like it was shot yesterday. It's nice. It's gorgeous, uh, to look at, um, a little light on features, but I'm not a big special feature guy. Anyway. Um, okay. So that's revenge of the revenge of the blood beast. It's available from, Raro video, which is an imprint of Kino Lorber. Oh, okay. Um, 
And then finally, uh, I saw, not finally, but for this round at least, before I turn it back over to you, I saw a movie I know you saw. You talked about it on our most recent uh, movie journal. Okay. Uh, I, I saw Wind River. Oh, okay, yeah. Didn't love it. I don't sure. hate it. I think, it, here's, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase my own Twitter, is that uh, it's odd that uh, David McKenzie seemed to understand what, are the good things about a Taylor Sheridan script better than Taylor Sheridan seems yeah. to. And I think what, what I, Hell or uh, High Water is my favorite of the three Taylor Sheridan movies, Sicario yeah. being my least favorite because I'm not a Denis Villeneuve fan, mm-hmm. uh, Arrival notwithstanding, I liked Arrival. Um, but Arrival had a good script, and I think Denis Villeneuve, given a bad script, which I think is what Taylor Sheridan's movies actually are in some ways bad scripts, um, and I think Devin McKenzie is the one who realized how to do it right. Uh, not in terms of like he, he's, he's interesting, you know, uh, story. Uh, and I think when he's focused on character specific dialogue, he's really good. But I yeah. think he also has a tendency to be uh, a little um, loquacious and overblown and ominous. And I think David McKenzie understood that those uh, those elements should be treated as something mythic. Yes. And so that's why it became like a Western, you know, uh, not that it wasn't a Western to begin with. Uh, and in some ways, all three of these movies are Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became like part of the grand tradition of the American West mythic. Yeah. And I think in Wind River, Taylor Sheridan takes his own dialogue a little too seriously. And there's um, every two or three scenes, there's a line that just like clangs like a gong to me and completely took, took me out of, out mm-hmm. of the movie, you know? Um, did we talk about this last week? Uh, off mic, I feel like a little um, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause one of the lines, uh, was when they, when, when he's talking, when Jeremy Renner is talking to Elizabeth Olsen and they're standing over the body of the victim or the, you know, the, the dead body that kicks things off. And he's like, I knew her. She was a fighter. However far you think she ran, I guarantee you she ran further. And it's like, that doesn't really mean like there is a fixed point. You're going to find out like you're going to investigate the crime. You're going to find out where she left from. And then you'll know where, how far she ran because you're standing there. Like, this isn't yeah. like, some, like Elizabeth Olsen could say she's right there. <laughs> That's how far she ran yeah. from wherever we start. Like I can tell you with shocking accuracy. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're going to investigate where she left from. Right. Right. So is Jeremy going to say, no, don't start looking there. Start looking a mile further away because yeah. it's further than you think. Like that's, yeah. that's a dumb line. And there's a number of things it's, like that. It's I, the kind I, of line I, that belongs in maybe a more like it's, like the David Mamet film heist has a lot of dumb lines uh-huh. that are still kind of great. Like everybody loves money. That's why they call it money. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> what the hell does that sense. mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, don't you want to hear my last words? I just, I just did. did. Yeah. That's yeah. A, such a dumb line, but it's great it's in that a, movie because he's having fun with it. And yeah. The tone is not a fun movie. It really isn't. I'm okay with it. I would describe his, uh, his writing as purple. Yeah. Um, there's definitely an element to that. And, I think I like it because I feel like he is trying to tackle big things. And I do think he, he creates solid characters and there is definitely a, I guess, I guess you could call it a formula, but like there is definitely a, a, a structure to these three films. Um, even right down to like the climax. Like if you look at, if you look at without spoilers, like, what Jeremy Renner does at the end of wind river. It's a little similar to Benicio del Toro does at the end of Sicario. 
Yeah. And similar to a couple of different scenes with the Jeff, with Jeff Bridges at the mm-hmm. end of uh, hell or high water. Like there definitely is a, there's a thing that Taylor Sheridan, there's a structure that he likes to adhere to. And I think it's a structure that I respond to pretty well. Um, because there's a mythic quality, but I, but yeah, it's, if you were to ask me, Hey, a writer wants to direct, <laughs> right. Usually yeah. I say that's not a great idea. Yeah. I think there's another one that I can't go too much into why I don't like this line. Cause it would be a spoiler. Cause it takes place late in the movie, but he says to Jim Renner says to Elizabeth Olsen, um, something about like the wolf doesn't eat the unluckiest deer. It doesn't catch the unluckiest deer. It catches the weakest one. Right. And it's like, that's nice. Like in the moment, I understand what he's saying to her, but it also yeah. says a lot about a lot of other characters we've seen in the movie. That's kind of insulting. I think yeah. um, the, that kind of annoyed me. I do like, and this is something that happened in all, uh, all three of the Taylor Sheridan movies that I'm just now putting my, my finger on that. I, uh, I like is that he writes characters who I think, even though these are genre like crime type movies or Western type movies or noirish type movies, like, he, he seems to be come be able to come up with characters who are able to arrive at murder as a solution faster than the audience will. Sure. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, so, like I feel like in all of his movies, there's scenes where like, oh, sudden, like I didn't expect this person's like our characters' lives to be in danger right now. Yeah, but they suddenly are because this other person is willing to kill, and I didn't realize it was good. Yeah. It was it had got, gotten there, um, and I keep falling for it in his movies. And it's and it's very effective, and stuff like that helps create the world, and especially in something like Wind River. I mean, I'd say Sicario and Wind River are very similar. It's like it's about these these communities, one very sparse and one packed in the middle of a, of a city, these communities where like things are so desperate that yeah, someone will pull a gun on a cop because Mm -hmm. what do I have to lose? You know, um, maybe I'll actually get away. And, uh, it's just, it's so outside of the, of like, I'd say conventional thinking that it really Stuff like that. He he does keep me on my toes. I'll say that. Um, and I uh, and there's a scene in Wind River where they're the there are the cops and they're investigating uh, like this private company. And then there's the private security. And there right. comes a moment when everyone's pulling a gun on each other. And I'm like, how is this allowed to happen right. at all? And it's like, and I really do. And if this is happening, anyone can pull the trigger at any time. And then this is. And then it's done. Yeah. And the fact that that happens and then everyone calms down, puts their guns away and then just continues with the movie. Uh It's like stuff like that is very effective and stuff like that is why I think he actually is, uh, will become a a solid director. I think it's not a terrible debut. Um, but I can also understand why, uh, one might not enjoy the movie as much as I did. Yeah. I last thing I'll say about, um, I think he went a little overboard with, um, I'm always skeptical in a movie when someone gets hit by a bullet and it takes them completely off their feet. Mm. Like, I don't know. I've never seen people. Thank God. I've never seen people getting right. shot before, but it seems like just the physics of that don't seem to make sense that someone like that a bullet's going to throw a person across the room. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not a rocket launcher. And like in order for, if it's like a shotgun, I feel like it could. Okay. All right. Yeah, but that's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about a scene like 
there's a guy in a, I guess, a, a trailer, you know, it's a stationary trailer. Yes. Looking out the window. He gets shot through the window and he flies against the far wall. Yeah. And that kind of stuff seems like it's uh, laying out a little thick. I guess I know that rifles can be pretty powerful sometimes. So maybe it's that. But at the same time, like, yeah, this isn't Watchmen. And I didn't like when Watchmen did it either. Yeah. Yeah. But because wouldn't I, I, again, I don't know. I'm not a physics guy, but if the bullet had that much power, then wouldn't the person shooting it also be knocked in the air by the force of shooting the gun? Uh, possibly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, but it's worth it. Okay. Um, uh, what's, uh, what's your next movie? So I already went into a lot of detail about this on our last episode, oh, but okay. it is, uh, it, uh, Oh, on our last uh, main episode. Yes. 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 This is uh, the, uh, the fall movie preview. Um, um uh, Muschietti is the director. Yes. Name. Andy. Okay. Andy Muschietti. So, and also, I was just recently on uh, an an out now bonus episode oh, talking okay. about uh, about it, and so at this point, between my review and the various things that I've said, uh, I feel like I don't have much else to say except that I think what gets me about the movie is that it is frustrating. Well, plenty of movies have been frustrating, but in this case, it's that there is so much good in it, and what's good is great and so effective, like. <clears throat> Everyone says that those kids are great and they're right. And every kid needs to be equally good. There are some that can be more effective than others, but Mm -hmm. nobody can be bad. Otherwise we, the audience will be like, "Ah, I wish he wasn't talking right now. Like everyone needs and they just need to feed into each other as an ensemble. And they really do. So everything that they, everything revolve around the kids and their relationships, I think is incredibly effective. And I feel like the film is worth recommending for that. But there are so many other things that I feel like the film just was not curious enough about, especially as far as the world of dairy. Um, okay. And what it would be like to live in this place where kids go missing pretty regularly. Uh, and adults have just kind of made a certain degree of peace with that, but they're probably fearful all the time. So, uh, so yeah, I, I feel like that would be a really interesting movie, but he, it really feels like in many cases there's the kids, there's Pennywise, there's this creepy house and that's it. It's like, it's all just happening, uh, in that, in that sequence in, in the matrix where, uh, where it's just a white background oh, okay. and there are these things and why bother filling in the rest? Uh, and so that's the thing is so, so like it's the way this film is frustrating to me because all the elements are there, but the director, and in some cases the director absolutely realizes the potential. And in other cases, it's not merely that he, it, he doesn't even squander it it's like it doesn't even occur to him to be curious about a world that everything about it is curious, is interesting to me. And I recognize that the film's already two hours and 15 minutes, but I do just feel like even within that, like there, you can structure this in a way where we get a really strong sense of the place, the characters and the threat. And I feel like we get the, we get the, the main characters, we get a pretty good idea of the threat but I do think the place is vital and he seemed to not think that, hmm. but I think it's a movie yeah. I still recommend. I'm, I'm curious. I didn't, I hadn't really been paying attention. I didn't realize until after it came out that it was just the kids. Yeah. 
because I, yeah, I'm, I've read the, the novel. I know yeah. how it's, how it's told. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that the adult part wasn't part of this movie, um, which made me want to see it a little less, I think. Um, well, and I'll say this, the kids are so effective that, so there's going to be a part two with the adults. And to me, it's just like, yeah, I've seen adults. Like these kids are so effective. That's like, yeah, somehow watching a bunch of grown people fight a threat is not that interesting to me. I'm sure it will be. Uh, I'm sure they'll have a great cast there too, but yeah, it's, I still think that uh, now that I've seen the original miniseries and I've seen this film, I think that it, it would function best as like a six or eight part miniseries. Um, going back and forth like the novel. I think so. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Um, yeah. Um, the miniseries, we didn't really talk that much about, you know, you, I think you brought it up when we did the fall movie preview, but mm. that's not what we were talking about. The miniseries right. I've seen multiple times. I used to watch it all the time as a kid. I've only watched it probably once as an adult. It's not, or at least once all the way through as an adult. It's not that great. It is not. It has some really, really terrifying moments. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, what's the one, I think... I think John Ritter ended up playing the grown-up version. I can't remember the the the, the boy's um, uh, name, but um, when he sees his father standing on out on the lake, just on water, yeah. yeah. And it's the middle of the day. I'm always very impressed by things that can scare me in yeah. broad daylight, and that's such a creepy moment. But um, uh, I will say, as much as I don't think the miniseries holds up all the way through, like I said, um, Tim Curry is great. And he is great. Part of what's great about it, like now I haven't seen the new one, but every still I've seen of Pennywise, he looks like an evil clown. And part of what's great about Tim Curry is that most of the time he just acted like a clown. It was weird and creepy, yeah. but he wasn't like, you know, head down, eyes up, sneering evil yeah. clown most of the time. Yeah. Uh, no, that is, that is a point that I, that I made on, uh, on out now is that, the Pennywise in the new film, Bill Skarsgård does a fine job uh, in the in his performance, but it's like this this clown has been is heavily art directed, <laughs> whereas it, to the point where it's like the moment he pops up. Now, admittedly, it's weird to see a clown in any context, yeah. But the minute he pops up, it's like that's an evil clown, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> whereas, I mean, it's it, no matter what, it's weird to see a clown in a storm drain like that is. That is a jarring image, and I think everybody yeah. that has done it has done it well. But there is something about, like, there are moments when Pennywise, as played by Tim Curry, so this has to do with how he's written, but also how he's played. He'll, like, do clown stuff. He'll say jo- he'll just, like, do dumb jokes and, like, laugh, which actually, I think, makes him more frightening mm-hmm. when he is this monster. Because you see this pivot from, like, and it, and it emphasizes... Uh, how perverse it is that this thing that is meant to bring joy to children and yeah. probably, and based on how it looks could, but now is just interested in, in terrifying them and, and hurting them. Whereas the one from the new, it's no debate here. <laughs> like we all know what it's, what's on its mind. This reminds me, I have another question, but I've, it will be a spoiler. So I'm going to ask you, uh, off mic. Okay. So, uh, I will move on to what I saw next. So I've mentioned a couple of very short films that I watched, Recently, I made up for it with this this film. I watched uh, 1978's The Tree of Wooden Clogs, which is like a three-hour and ten-minute movie. Um, And it takes place in the uh, Italian countryside. um, And I think it's supposed to be like the 
late 1700s or the 1800s. Um, I don't entirely remember, but um, basically it's about a group of families that all live on the same farm. It's essentially like a, um, you know, very small localized uh, form of feudalism. Like mm-hmm. there's a there's an owner who owns the whole farm, and then there are families who live in one building on it, all like the or one complex of buildings, and then they do different jobs. You know, okay. one of them harvests this, and one of them you know slaughters the whatever. Um, and mostly, it's just a sort of series of like episodic vignette type of things just showing their lives. There are a few uh, through lines, one about one of the like, um, boys, uh, needs a new pair of clogs, which is not, these are very poor people. That's not a, um, not a minor thing. And then there's a courtship and eventual spoilers, eventual marriage. Um, but, uh, mostly it's just these people's lives and it's, uh, absolutely engrossing. The thing I, I, somebody looking at my phone, I'm looking up, it, look, I don't speak Italian, okay. so I didn't notice this anyway, but um, one thing that is notable about it is that it is, the movie takes place entirely in a very localized dialect among, like, poor people, so I guess even when it came out, like, even in Italy, it needed subtitles, it needed oh, wow. Italian subtitles, okay. because it's not... Um, it's it's a language that it I don't, I don't know if there are any movies that take place entirely in this language other than this one I think that's one of the things that's uh, uh, notable about it um, but it's uh, it, it sort of feels like I think um, my like little joke to myself is that it feels like like I'm saying because it's these people who live all together and it's just their lives and it's just very episodic. It feels like a mini series of like a Melrose place type of uh, series, except instead of, you know, models and shit living in, uh, West Hollywood, it's farmers living on top of one another. It's, it's so much just about their lives. Like hmm. plot is, is, is secondary. And that's part of the reason why the, um, the three and a half hours, you know, it sort of seems timeless. Like you could tell me, you know, it it feels like it could be an hour, it could be six hours, like right. it just sort of like exists in this time for a while, but it, it's long enough to really immerse you. Um, anyway, it's a it's a it's a lovely movie. I also forgot the director's name. It's an Italian name. His name is Ermano Olmi. Okay. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, on Blu-ray from uh, Criterion. Uh, so you know, check that out. Um. I closed my list, so... Oh, my. Now I have to stall, I have to vamp. What's in the news today? Well, there's only really one way to find out. Go to BattleshipPretension.com and check out my takes on the news. Yeah, news takes. News takes. Tyler's takes. That's how Tyler takes it. That's what we're I don't like that at all. I do not like that at all. (laughs) Frank Vincent died. How did Tyler take it? Uh, okay, uh, next movie I watched, Tyler. Okay. Holy shit. I think I discovered one of my all-time favorite movies. Really? Oh, okay. Um, but in a weird way, like, this is a crazy fucking movie. Okay. So, here's how I'm going to get to this. You're not going to see this coming. You and I both both watched Glow. We did. The the Not together, but the, the Netflix series Glow. The real Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Mm-hmm. 
was created or co-created by a guy named Matt Simber or Kimber, okay. who was also before that had directed a bunch of movies like exploitation type movies. Okay. And he made a movie in 1976 called the witch who came from the sea that I like, I watched this movie alone, but I kept, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to do it for you because I, the listener won't see it. But like the thing where your jaw is a gape, but also you're smiling, but also you're looking left to right to see if, to make sure like other people are seeing this. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay, I like, I got it. Okay. So I was like, I can't believe what I'm watching. This movie is a fucking nuts. That's how I felt about house. The the uh, Japanese film. Yeah. Um, this one's a bit more on the exploitation side sure. than, than House. It stars Millie Perkins, Academy Award nominee Millie Perkins, because mm. as a young girl, she was nominated for playing Anne Frank in the 1959 Diary of Anne Frank. Oh, okay. Um, uh, this is a different type of role. Um, so the movie's called The Witch Who Came From the Sea. It is not in any way about what you think it's about. It's not a witch. It's not a supernatural movie at all. Um, what about where? Um, it is does, it near an ocean? It, is. it, does, it takes place in Santa Monica, okay. but in like scuzzy 1970s Santa Monica, oh, not okay. like ritzy now Santa Monica. Um, and Emily Perkins plays a woman uh, who um, is, she's an aunt to her sister's two boys. She's a doting aunt. They're like mm-hmm. her whole life. And she spends her time telling them all these stories about her father, their grandfather and what a wonderful man he was. Um, and, um, but their mother doesn't feel that way. Okay. They don't share an opinion on their grandfather. Um, and we eventually come to realize why, which is that their dad spent their entire childhoods raping them repeatedly. Whereas Mm -hmm. Mary Perkins character has dissociated from it. Yeah. Um, except when she gets drunk, seduces men, kills them and cuts their balls off. So this is a movie about a female serial killer. Got it. Uh, that's what it. Uh, that, that's that's what it's really about. Um, but uh, it has so many things that I that happen that I can't. I like. I'm just. I can't believe. Like the right at the beginning, she's taking her two nephews to the beach. She's telling them all these stories about their grandfather, and she looks over, and this beach has like uh, like Muscle Beach in Venice. It has like a workout area, mm-hmm. and so there are these men big, huge, muscly men working out. And she just sort of gets lost in thought and starts staring at them. And the camera starts giving us a bunch of extreme close-ups of their junk in their, like, swimming trunks. And then cutting back to her, like, staring at their junk. And then it cuts to her imagination where she is imagining all three of them dead and slit open and hanged from (laughs) from the gym equipment. That's... This is the first four minutes of the movie, by the way. It's it's so nuts, and I loved it so much. It's such a weird, great performance by Millie Perkins. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it it's the the a rare female serial killer uh, movie, but it's also like it is exploitative, and some of the stuff is, you know, I mean, there's some of the stuff is really uh, not, you know it, it, apparently it was a movie that had to be cut down to not get an, an X rating at the time I could um, see that yeah uh, it, there's some really brutal uh, stuff really upsetting stuff with the flashbacks to her childhood but also it's kind of like I mean I don't know who Matt Simber was from what I've heard about the real Gorgeous Ladies Wrestling he was not necessarily a feminist <laughs> to put it lightly <laughs> sure but um, 
like, you know, women don't become killers that often. Mm-hmm. And when they do, there usually is some sort of childhood sexual mm-hmm. uh, abuse. That's a, a pretty common thing. And so, uh, the movie is, I guess, honest about that. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. Um, but it's, it's such a bizarre, uh, movie and such an upsetting movie, but also, um, weirdly lovely too, and kind of dreamy. Um, well, I mean, you talked about that sequence with those guys. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> how does Tyler take it? Uh, and um, they're clearly, like, I mean, like they're clearly wearing things down their pants. Like their their oh, bulges okay. don't even look like the okay. shape of penises. They just have these massive bulges. <laughs> it's it, it's so the whole movie is so over the top like that. Uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Where did you, how did you see it? It's on Amazon Prime, but basically, uh, I've talked about this before that I have a tendency to, uh, so I was, I mentioned at the top of the show, I was out of town, um, this past weekend, mm-hmm. um, with my, with my wife, uh, which meant, uh, I didn't get to go to, uh, I think it was the Egyptian on Saturday where they were showing this. Oh, okay. I think because of the glow connection, sure, were, like sure. showing a couple of his films. And so I'd read about it being at the Egyptian and I was like, I'm going to be out of town. I can't see it. But I was like, Oh, it's on Amazon prime. I mean, well, you know, it'd be nicer to, to have seen it in a the theater. I'm sure. Oh God, I'd love to have seen it in a the theater. But, um, uh, that's how I came around yeah. to seeing it. Cause I had heard, read you know, that, uh, Egypt, the Egyptian was showing it and, uh, feels like it could be a out. good, like midnight show uh, around, yeah. around town. Um, and then finally for me, I saw a movie that we just talked about, um, last week on the fall movie preview. I saw Peter Landisman's Mark felt the man who brought down the white house. Um, this is the guy who made concussion and I can tell you this movie is better than concussion. Okay. Uh, other than that, it's not, it's really not, it doesn't go too deep. I think you will be as knowing what you look for in a biopic type movie. Yeah. I think you particularly would be disappointed. Um, it's a, it's a very shallow sort of look. Who plays felt? <clears throat> Liam Neeson. Uh, and here's what's, I mean, this is what's great about it is the cast is full of, um, character actors. And also it, it does give you sort of a, a rundown of, you know, the Watergate. It's, it's kind of like, all the president's men, but told from the FBI side, as opposed to mm. told from the side of deep throat, you know, I like the idea of that. Um, it, but that's I, even that I think promises more than it actually yeah. is. It's, it, it's the really, the real reason to, <coughs> to see it, I think is the, the performances. You've got, uh, Liam Neeson is Mark felt. Diane Lane plays, uh, his wife, Audrey felt Mike Monroe from it follows plays their daughter. Oh, nice. Uh, Michael, Michael C. Hall plays John Dean, uh, Wendy McLevin Covey plays Mark Phelps, um, uh, secretary, uh, Ike Barinholtz plays an FBI agent. Hmm. Um, who else? Uh, I wonder how competent that FBI agent is. <laughs> uh, he's one of the good ones, I think. Okay. Um, Kay Walsh is in it. Eddie Marsan has one scene. Uh, you know, Martin Sockis. Do you know that, uh, actor? You'd recognize him if you, the name sounds familiar if, too. If you saw him, here's a, here's a picture of him. Oh, got it. Yeah. He's yeah. been in a lot of stuff. Um, he plays uh, um, Pat Gray, the guy who was appointed head of the FBI after Hoover dies. Appointed by I was going to ask if, like if Hoover man. is in it. Uh, no, it, like the Hoover's death happens like in the second scene. Okay, um, but he's not actually seen it. Uh, Josh Lucas, Bruce Greenwood, Tony Goldwyn, Tom Sizemore, Noah Wiley, Brian Darcy James. Like it's that's a yeah. It, it's a great cast, and there's a. Uh, I almost wish you could play. There's a, there's a scene. The uh, the clip is on YouTube from 
Sony Pictures Classics whoever put in, is putting this out as a promotional clip of just uh, Mark Felt talking to John Dean and some of Richard Nixon's other advisors where he's kind of telling them what the FBI and Hoover might have on them yeah. but as a way he's telling them to say like it's okay like your secret's safe with us but also telling them we know your secrets <laughs> right it's a great like scene and it's because you've got Liam Neeson essentially giving a monologue yeah you kind of can't go wrong with that that's true um, and Michael C. Hall is, a, is an actor that I've um, that I think is maybe a little bit underrated um, that's, I mean he's mostly known for TV right for yes. under in Dexter and yeah. Dexter um, he was really great in Kill Your Darlings the movie where um, mm. Harry Potter played uh, young Allen Ginsberg yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's not Harry Potter's name Stanley Radcliffe I know uh, he's a hockey fan I should show him some respect and he's a human being I should show him some respect wouldn't it be <laughs> nice I I, th- I like the idea that right around near episode 550, you and I just take a drastic turn and we become those types of people that we don't call him yeah. Radcliffe. <laughs> we call him Harry Potter. They're just yeah. like by their best. It's like, yeah. So Batman over here, like talking about Christian Bale or Michael <laughs> Keaton. Um, yeah. Well, there's a new movie, American assassin with, uh, let's see, styles gambit and Batman. Yeah. <laughs> um, or the vulture. I like to think of him as the vulture. Oh, I didn't. I still haven't seen uh, the new Spider-Man. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, Mark felt uh, it's it's, it's going to come and go, but um, yeah. it's definitely. A, I think it would be a decent like uh, uh, airplane movie. <laughs> like, sure. if it's if it's available on the back, of, you know, the back of the seat in front of you when yeah. you're on an airplane, and you got a uh, uh, hundred minutes to kill. Do you so think it might be good for that? Do you think? Um, because I feel like with a movie like this, you can always kind of tell, just tonally. Do you think it has uh, Oscar ambitions? I don't. I, I don't think so. Okay. I, I think the um, the I don't think the story is going to grab people the way, at least not the way it's told. It's much yeah. like Concussion. It's just too dry. Um, yeah. But uh, it's. I mean, it's uh, it does have some interesting things to point out about the that are very relevant today in terms of the relationship between the Oval Office and the FBI. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and and you know what um, what uh, power the Oval Office has versus what power they should have. Yeah. Well, you know what power they have on paper versus what power they actually have in practice yeah. over an FBI investigation into the Oval Office. Yeah, um, is definitely relevant uh, today. But I also don't feel like it goes deep enough into into that. Um, yeah, I would say the best uh, as a character. I mentioned John Martin Sarkis as as was it John Gray? Was it whatever Gray? the guy who was like Nixon's man who was appointed as head of the FBI when Hoover mm. dies pretty much to keep an eye on people like Mark Felt. Right. And you see over the course of his tenure at the FBI, him come to be a believer in the FBI mm. more and more. That, that, it's like Beckett. Uh, it's like Beckett. Yeah, I guess it's like Beckett. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Um, that's maybe the most interesting arc to me, but mm. uh, yeah, not great. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm done on movies. What do you got? Well, you mentioned that Harry Potter is a big hockey fan. And so um, I, after many years of hearing you just talk and just just drone on about how great Goon is, I figured I should watch it. Yeah. Which I did. Yeah. And I... I'm not sure if I'd say I love it, but I really like it. And it's... It is so... And I, I think this is something you've said, like, 
you go in with a very specific expectation of what this movie's going to be, and it isn't. It is like it seemed like it was going to be kind of this this kind of slapstick kind of goofy mm-hmm. comedy, and the presence of Sean William Scott kind of lends itself to that. That it could be like a like role models or something, but like there's a real darkness to it. Yeah. It, it feels maybe a little bit, certainly not this much, but a little bit of a piece with like observe and report. Okay. Um, and I mean, it owes a lot to Rocky in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's the difference like, between observe and report is that, uh, Doug Glad is more of a Rocky and like, yeah, Sean William Scott is yeah. as, as brutal as the movie gets in terms of, yeah. and that's what I like about it. The, the, the hockey fights are very, very brutal and bloody. Yeah. Exaggeratedly so, as a hockey fan, they're sure. Not. But um, through it all, like Sean William Scott is so dopely likable and has such heart. He is, but the, it's actually a shockingly committed performance. Like he is dopely likable, but he is a dope. Yeah, I mean, and he seems to know it, which is nice. But at the same time, it's like this guy is only gonna go so deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate that Sean William Scott didn't try to imbue the character with more than was there. Yeah. Um, but, and so yeah, those, those, the, the hockey sequences are a lot of fun and, but what I'll say, and I feel like this movie inspired me to rewatch spotlight because Liev Schreiber oh, yeah, is yeah. becoming one of my favorite actors. Absolutely. He is so dependable. Like there was that movie Pawn Sacrifice, which is not good, okay. but he's great in it. Like he, there's something about his presence. He is a stabilizing presence. He is a calming presence. He is forceful. Um, where even like in Pawn Sacrifice, he is Boris Spassky. He is the rival mm-hmm. and he's the rival in this as well. And then he's also a very aloof figure of authority in spotlight. Um, so so people that like playing characters that we, the audience might instinctively kind of not keep our distance from, but kind of look, look at with suspicion and we still do, but he brings a great deal of dignity to his characters. Um, yeah. Yeah, Whether he's playing this sort of, uh, urbane learned, guy from spotlight or he's playing Ross Ray, the, yeah. you know, hard drink and hard fight and yeah. And like uh, wash out. I mean, and that's the thing is like, I always thought that, uh, he's the type that just oozes intelligence and Ross Ray is a guy who is self-aware mm-hmm. and he is smarter than Doug, mm-hmm. but he's not a smart guy. You, you at least not the way that the character from spotlight would be. Yeah. Um, and so, I I like everybody. I think Jerry Baruchel is a lot of fun. I appreciate his uh, commitment as well. Um, But yeah, I think I I really, and Kim, wait, Kim, Kim Coates. Coates. Yeah. That's right. I was like Kim Carnes. That's not right. (laughs) Um, Kim Coates is a lot of fun, but I really came away just being like, this might be the thing that cinches it. And that like Liev Schreiber is one of my favorite actors working today. Like one of the most dependable. Mm -hmm. I almost want to go watch that terrible Wolverine movie to see him as Sabretooth. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I was very happy. I watched it. I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, the one thing, and of course you are, the hockey fan mm-hmm. between the two of us. So you would be the one to say this. You say that it is the best hockey movie ever. My question is this. It is so about the fights. Yeah. And so not about like 
he's even told like, don't try to be a hockey player Yeah, that I feel like it's so specific that I could see other hockey fans feeling like it, that it's being reductive. And there probably are some, but I also think there's a, uh, and I think I mentioned this actually in my review of last of the enforcers, um, that, there's a type of hockey. There, there's an element to hockey fandom that is underserved by the existing hockey movies. Like hockey fans, like all sports fans do get weirdly sentimental about things like sure. miracle. And, you know, and, you know, you know, this is like sports are what, you know, uh, even guys who like men who keep their emotions to themselves, sports, yeah. the thing they get emotional about. And so there is a room for that. But with hockey, there also is a lot of, a, a, a lot of the attraction of it is that it's rowdy and brutal and, no. and that it's kind of, especially in America, I know this is a Canadian movie in America. It's kind of seen as like an underdog sport in Canada. It's no. the NFL or, whatever. Oh, yeah. but, um, in, in, in America, it has this sort of scrappy feel. So I think people can like, can like both. And I think, um, there is something to, the fact that goon came out in what 2011 11, 2011 yeah. um and, and takes place in the modern day but the the real doug his name's not glatt uh the real guy that whose story inspired uh this the, this movie um was from like the 1980s when this was much more of a thing or maybe in the 90s but this is much more of a thing like fighting is going away from sure. the nhl so it's kind of anachronistic in that way mm. but i also think there's probably a lot of things I remember talking about this with uh, my old co-host of um, previously on Sean, who liked the movie but doesn't watch hockey at all, uh, about how there are there are things in Goon and also in Last of the Enforcers um, that uh, hockey fans will pick up on that I think a, a normal no. uh, a, a normal viewer uh, won't. Uh, I'm trying to remember specifically like um, I know there's specific talks about like ice time like who skated more time during a game. Mm, like yeah, that's yeah. a really specific thing. I'm trying to think cause it's been a year since I've seen Goon. I remember the, the example I'm remembering uh, now is from last of the enforcers. There's a part where he is facing off in the locker room with his rival played by Wyatt Russell. And they do that thing where Wyatt Russell does that thing where he steps up close to him and like, you know, gets right in his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's in, to a normal viewer. That's him being intimidating, intimidating what, hockey fans will also notice is that in order to step up to Doug, he has to walk across the logo on the floor of the, of the locker room. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge no, no in, hmm. uh, in hockey, every locker room, professional locker room has a logo in the middle of the floor and everyone who visits the locker room, be it a player coach press or whatever makes a wide berth around the logo. You never step on the logo. Uh, and so there are, there are little things like that in those That's movies interesting. that I think, comes from the fact that Jay Baruchel wrote both wrote a both of them yeah. and is a diehard massive hockey fan and and knows this kind of stuff and also all the stuff I'm saying again to Canadians is probably very obvious sure um and the other thing another thing that it's a small it's a small thing but I think it, it's it's very helpful as far as bringing me not only am I not a hockey fan I'm not a sports fan um but bringing me into the world is like it's very clear that in the world of hockey, you're going to hear a, a different array of accents. Oh yeah, like yeah. In every, in any other sport, you know, you'll hear 
you'll hear a lot of Southern accents, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, uh, and different kinds of dialects, but like, Oh, I wasn't expecting, okay, we've got French, we've got Russian, yeah. we've got Boston, like we've got a, a very, a lot of and American. Northeast. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, I didn't hear a lot of Minnesotan, but I guess that's close enough to Canadian, but like yeah, in Minnesota, hockey is yeah. huge, of course. Yeah. Um, the state of hockey. Is that what it is? Yeah, people call it that. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I was glad that I watched it and I, and I did enjoy it quite a bit. Um, I'm glad. Okay. Uh, all right. You have some TV to talk about. I do too, but I do you go first. So I was on, uh, I was on our friend Dave Amiot's podcast, uh, the studio 60 sessions. Yeah. And, um, so I watched an episode of studio 60, uh, on the sunset strip. Um, so I didn't watch it on the sunset, the sunset strip. It's that's the name of the show. The full name yeah. of the show. Yeah. Um, so I watched, have you seen the whole show? I can't remember if I ever finished it because okay. I remember they took it off yes. and they burned a bunch of episodes at the end. Either did they air them or maybe they just put them on the website. I think they aired them. All. Okay. I, I think I watched them, but I don't really okay. remember how it ended. So I, maybe I didn't yeah. watch them. This is uh this is like about halfway through. It's a, it's the first of a two parter. It's called the Harriet dinner. Um, so in watching it, I'd only ever seen the first episode of studio 60 and it did not, not unlike the newsroom, it did not inspire me to continue. Um, but I was happy that I watched it and I was like, I, I forget that Aaron Sorkin is a dependable writer and, does have a way with dialogue and can craft a really nice ensemble. Um, but that show really just, it's hard to explain. It's kind of a tonal mess. Like it's all over the place. Like I don't think it knows what it wants to be or what it's trying to be. Mm -hmm. Um, like the West wing, I mean, all of his shows and movies have humor in them and are often quite funny. But like the West Wing, for example, like that is a drama, undeniably, but it is also very funny, but it is a drama first. Yeah. I think Studio 60, I think he thought it was a drama. Maybe like, I really don't know uh, what he considered it to be. Um, And so I feel that that kind of tonal tug of war the the whole time. And, uh, it kept me from really, uh, embracing it, uh, understandably so, but I still liked a lot of those performances. I, I, I like Sarah Paulson. Um, yeah. and it was, uh, but it was interesting. I, it, and I'll say this, like, so this was, like I said, it was part one of a two parter. It did make me want to watch the second part. It might not make me want to watch the rest of the show, but yeah. I at least want to know how some of this, uh, shakes out. But, uh, but yeah, so you can go, you can find the, uh, studio 60 sessions on iTunes and, uh, and listen to that episode. Uh, so let's see, I watched that and then I watched, um, uh, you and I were talking about this, but I don't think we were talking about it on Mike. Uh, Jen and I watched the first season of the good place, okay. um, which I enjoyed quite a bit. I do think that there are a couple moments where it doesn't go as far as it could, uh, comedically but that tends to be the case anytime like a world and the rules are being established mm-hmm. um and there's a couple things where it's like eh, i don't actually but then there are other times when they've spent so much energy developing characters that whenever they that 
sometimes they'll go for the joke and I'm like, yeah, but now I don't believe that. Mm. Uh, so there's a couple things here and there, but for the most part, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I think the cast is great and it really does feel like, uh, I, I enjoyed the way they developed it. And I, and there's a big twist in the last episode that I think they handled pretty well, but more than anything, I'm just excited to see where it goes in the second season. And a friend of mine was a script coordinator on there and he actually wrote episode 10 of the second season. Um, and so, uh, so he didn't spoil anything for me, but he did say like some of the stuff that is going to be addressed in the second season. And, uh, that interests me a great deal. So I, I really enjoyed watching it. And, uh, Kristen Bell is a, is a performer that I enjoy. I think she's, I think she's kind of a limited actress, hmm. but within what she can do, she's very good at it. And, you know, whenever we're seeing Eleanor in the real world and we see just how much of an asshole she is, yeah. uh, it's, it's very funny. Yeah. So she's one of those people, like I do like her as an actress, but she's just like really good at being a celebrity, like really good at being a famous person. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you saw what, ha- I think it was, um, she was like stranded like a lot of people, uh, during hurricane Irma or whatever. Um, and she ended up being at the same place where a bunch of senior citizens were relocated from a senior citizen home and they're all there in the same place. So she just spent the night calling bingo. Like they all played bingo and she was like, I'm going to play bingo with everybody here. That's pretty great. That's so cool. Right. And I like that she, it, she and Dax Shepard are together, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I kind of love that. Like, yeah. I think those kids are going to make it. They both seem actually remarkably humble. Um, you know, calling out bingo yeah. to a group of people that probably do not recognize you sure, as a yeah. celebrity, yeah. I think is, is pretty great. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I, I'm almost like dreading actually bringing this up, but I've watched twin peaks and the reason I'm dreading, dreading bringing it up because I don't know where to start. Yeah. I've been kind of happy that I have not talked about it on the movie journal, but it's over now. So I feel like I should address it. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I don't like it. I love it. I think it's amazing. I think it's a monumental, uh, uh achievement and it's one of, it's going to be, I think looked on, as one of the greatest things David Lynch did, but I also have no idea how to talk about it. And I kind of like just keeping it experiential for myself. Like this, yeah. this is something that I went through, um, that I think probably altered me in some way. Um, but that I, I don't know how to like deconstruct it. It <laughs> actively resists that sort of analytical approach yeah. at every turn because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, and it often refuses to give the audience what the audience wants, but I think not in a puckish way. Like I think yeah. it's just David Lynch following his muse. Yeah. Um, and, and what that also meant when it does give the audience what it wants, yeah. uh, it, you know, um, it, you know, Dale Cooper talking about coffee or whatever, it means yeah. more because it's yeah. like, uh, it's like, Oh, I've been waiting for this to happen now. Um, what are you going to say? So I'm still hovering at like five episodes cause I just haven't had the time to sit down and yeah. watch it. Cause that's the only way I will allow myself to watch. It. I'm not going to have it on while I'm working. Um, but about the, like the, even the first episode, but like the second episode, like when I realized like, Oh, he's not going to 
play into what people fondly remember about Mm -hmm. Twin Peaks. And then when I saw what he was doing, I was like, he's just a genre into unto himself. Like he's, he is, he's almost, it's almost impossible to classify what his sensibilities are. It's just Lynchian. Like that's who he is. And you know, you've always been a bigger fan of him than I have, but I think as I've gotten older and I've come to just maybe older and more cynical and maybe just reviewing movies, like it's, it can be so refreshing to be confused Uh and it can be so refreshing because after a while, especially in a TV show, because a, a movie, a two hour movie, you don't have, I feel like you might not have enough time to settle in to that feeling. And even in the five, in the five hours that I've spent watching it of a 18 episode thing, like it gives you enough time to kind of settle in and just let his, his world and his characters and his tone, just let it wash over you. It's like confusion. Like you said, it doesn't make sense. Like those aren't even questions that should be asked about this thing. It is, you said experiential, like it's experiential a hundred percent. Like words don't work. Yeah. Um, I will address one thing you said that was, you mentioned genre and I think David Lynch in general and twin peaks in particular even the old Twin Peaks, so it's not thought of this way, um, is horror. I think that's mm. that's the number one thing I would come back to is that it's a. Um, I, I think we talked about this at our, or when Twin Peaks first came back that like people tend to remember it as like, oh, it was like Northern Exposure with the FBI, but it's like yeah. no, it was a, it was a pretty pretty fucking dark show. Yeah. Um, and Firewalk with Me is you know definitely steers in into that and the return or, or season three, whatever we're calling it, um, is becomes very specifically about, I think I want to say a particularly American evil, like the idea that there is an evil and a horror lurking in the land or in the people or in the trees or whatever yeah. in, in, in America. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes it's behind closed doors or sometimes it's out in the open. Um, and sometimes we're a party to it. And sometimes we're, so we sit back and watch it. And sometimes we don't even notice it, but there are, there's an ongoing horror to the, to the twin peaks universe or whatever. Yeah. Um, that, I, that I think is, is if I had to classify this show, I would say it's a work of horror, especially that I'm definitely, Definitely being um, was uh, definitely informed by the very end of the very last episode, which is mm. truly a horror moment and left me with like the chill chills that, that only a horror movie can can give you. Um, but uh, I, I, I think I'm not sure when I will return to it. Mm. I think I will at some point when it's available for on home video and I can, you know, own it and, and go, and go through it. I think I definitely will, um, return to it. Um, I'm not sure what kind of experience that will be, you know, like I'm rewatching Buffy and Angel right now. That's a very different experience because this is not Twin Peaks season three, Twin Peaks to return, whatever is not an episodic show. It's an 18 hour movie Yeah, (laughs) that's cut into pieces. Um, uh, and, uh, like I said, it's, I, I think it's 
it's among the best things that David Lynch has done. And it's among the most David Lynch things mm. that he's done. Um, you know, uh, anyway, I don't want to address, I feel like I should address, I mean, I'm trying to talk about this in such an abstract way. I just feel like I should address the, you know, hashtag problematic parts of David Lynch in general and Twin Peaks in particular, mm. and that he tends to, uh, that, Characters of color in David Lynch works tend to be more representations of something than sure. actual characters. Sure, I think, and and the return did not vary from that. That still that still seems to be the case uh, with him, and um, I think that's uh, definitely unfortunate. Um, but uh, I, I guess something can be problematic and still be a work of genius, <laughs> right? Uh, no question about okay. it. Yes. <laughs> All um, right. So my last TV show, um, I watched, okay, well, let's do this. I'm going to tell a personal story from this past Friday. Um, so I, last Thursday, I recorded, uh, an episode, a mini-sode of more than one lesson. And within that I had made a cut that I forgot about. Okay. So when the time came to adjust, uh, cause I add the music in the, in garage band itself. Okay. When the time came to adjust, I did not allow for that cut. And so, uh, I wound up pushing one, uh, speech clip back and overlapping with the other speech clip. So for about 20 seconds. Uh-huh. So I lost about 20 seconds. I didn't realize that I, you know, I exported it. I posted it. And didn't think about it until the next day. I was uh, in my car. I was driving to go meet a friend for dinner, and about and then I and I actually thought and I thought like you know what like this is just me talking by myself. I wonder if I sped through it. So I I turned it on uh, in my car, and about ten minute uh, ten seconds in, I was like, holy shit, there was a cut I forgot about. Uh huh. And. You know that I'm not in the best emotional and mental place right now. And so what happened when I realized that is I proceeded for the next five minutes to launch into the loudest I have ever screamed at me yelling stuff like, you worthless piece of shit, you are bad at everything, Uh, podcasting was the only thing you had and you're bad at it. it was for about five minutes. It got so bad that like when I finally did meet up with my friend, Uh he's like, and I said, Hey, how you doing? He said, are you sick? You sound sick. I was like, no, I guess I should explain what just happened. (laughs) Um, and, uh, now I will say that that car trip, uh, ended okay because after about five minutes of being exhausted, um, I just said like, you really can't talk to yourself like that. Like this is bad stuff. So it ended on a, on a positive note. And then it turns out that that the, the abrupt cut is virtually invisible. It does look like, wow, Tyler jumped from the intro to alien really fast. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but it's mostly invisible and nobody noticed. But, uh, anyway, so all that is to say that, there are very few shows or movies that really get 
self-destruction, self-hatred, and full-on depression right. BoJack Horseman gets it so right that there is... I saw this episode the next day. Uh, no, a, a couple days later. There is an episode called Stupid Piece of Shit. Mm-hmm. And it is all about his internal monologue as he goes about his day. And it's him saying throughout, saying like, you're a stupid piece of shit. You're not good at anything. And it was so effective for me that that show that in the midst of being often very funny is willing to go as dark as a human being can go without actually murdering anybody. Um, now I will say that Bojack Horseman does get clumsily political, um, in, in some cases and I'd say insufferably. So, uh, it is very frustrating when it does that. And it's not because the, the politics that it's extolling are different than mine. Like I'm used to that. I don't care, but, um, it's just the way that it does it where it's just like, do you feel obligated to do this? Mm. Because compared to what you're doing with character stuff, it doesn't hold a candle to it. Like the character stuff is specific and it is well, well explored, well realized. And then the politics stuff is like, we're just going to do this because I guess people care about politics, right? Um, It's like, we have a platform, so let's do this. Like you are doing so much more important stuff by just being true to these characters and where they are right now. And so I'm sorry to get so dark, but the thing is like this show is, it deserves like a Peabody or something like that or a Pulitzer because short of, I think a book, which can very much show an internal monologue, uh, pretty well. Um, I, I cannot think of a, of another piece of dramatic art that's so fully and beautifully realizes what depression and, mental illness and self-hatred looks like and just the desperate the desperation to get out of it while also having a hard time doing so um so sorry wasn't intending on going that deep into it but it is if you haven't seen bojack horseman Horseman. the first season is rough okay they're finding their legs in the first season and then they get going and i think that even though you will probably agree with their politics i think even you would be like Come on, guys, what are you doing? Um, but I think it's, I think everybody should watch it. I think it's a thing I've been thinking about lately. And, and in fact, um, in the upcoming episode of Battleship Pretension, I actually quote this. It's that Roger Ebert idea of, of film being this machine that generates yeah. empathy. So the idea of art being used to create empathy in the audience is something that has really been on my mind lately. And, Bojack Horseman creates a lot of empathy while not soft peddling the f- inherent frustration that can come from dealing with somebody like this. Um, it, it is wonderful. And it was, and in that moment when I, when I heard that episode, uh, sorry, when I saw that episode, um, it did something that, that is rare but I, but I feel like you, one can run across more with music. I didn't feel so alone. Mm. I felt like, well, at least someone understands what it's like to be like this. And, uh, so yeah, that's, 
BoJack Horseman season four. Um, that reminds me, then we'll wrap up something I heard recently. There's a magazine called, I think it's called like public diplomacy magazine or whatever. And there <laughs> Sounds was a like poll, a barrel of laughs. <laughs> but there was a poll in which a majority of respondents said that eating food from other cultures, other ethnicities made them more likely to have positive feelings about that culture hmm. or ethnicity. And my, I agree with that as someone who likes to eat a lot of different foods, but my immediate thought was like food, like you guys should try movies. <laughs> and, yeah. I don't, and I don't just mean foreign countries, although I do mean that, sure, sure. but in general, like a movie is seeing the world from someone else's point of view. Yeah. Like it's, uh, I mean, it, it can be as valuable as a trip out of the country sometimes, or, yeah. or, you know, it can, it can reset you or, or change who you are. Um, and the more you experience art, um, which is, that's all the, all that art is in some ways is just seeing the world from other people's perspective. Yeah. Uh, I think the more, um, uh, empathetic and well-rounded a person you'll be. Um, I will say that, uh, so I'm, I'm part of a, a weekly Bible study and we've been going through Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? No. Pretty dark. Uh, it's all about how everything is meaningless, uh-huh. a chasing after the wind. Uh, and what's more is like the book of Ecclesiastes, regardless of if you're Christian or Jewish or whatever it is, um, read through it because it is a fascinating stream of consciousness because you have someone, uh, Solomon, who is like ultimately says stuff like, you know, wisdom is better than folly. But wisdom is also meaningless. Like you, you see him like trying to work stuff out in real time. So we've oh, been wow. going through Ecclesiastes while I was watching BoJack Horseman. So like it's been a rough week, um, but at the same time, so it's it, this speaks to something we've talked about before. That like there have been people who say like, how can you enjoy something that is so depressing? It's like because I'm engaging with it, yeah, and engaging with humanity is enjoy in, in, enjoyable to me, but maybe not in the standard definition of enjoy. Um, and so, yeah, I do, I do highly recommend Bojack Horseman. I, again, I will stipulate a lot of the humor in that first season is really obvious and on the nose. You just kind of have to power through it. And then season two is, is pretty remarkable and three and four are great as well. So check it out.